times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. I have some wonderful news. I've won the gold medal lottery. (laughs) No, no, it's not a monetary lottery. (laughs) I wish. But remember I said I was waiting to see if I'd secured a place at this new vacation spot? Well, I received an email this week confirming that I'm one of the lucky 30 who's got a place booked. So that's me off on vacation on Friday, May 20th. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's, uh, that's the weekend our season finale airs, now that I think about it. Ah, well, I'm sure there's no connection. (laughs) No connection whatsoever. And Joanna's fallen out of touch. She checked herself out of the health clinic and didn't leave a forwarding address. I guess that means she's doing better, which is great for her, and bad news for us, probably. If she's back to full strength, who knows what witchcraft she'll be engaging in to screw with us. Ah, well, I'll deal with that if and when it comes. The best thing for me to do right now would be to host a podcast. The No Sleep Podcast, in fact. And so, let the horror begin. In our first tale, we join Samson as something unwanted comes to his small town. Unwanted, but not entirely unexpected. After all, they've learned about it in church. But in this tale, shared with us by author Amanda Knapp, the details of the apocalypse don't quite match up with Samson's Bible teachings. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Doolin, Aaron Lillis, Mike Delgadio, and Jeff Clement. So let's make our way around Grey Pass and experience the end times. That is, if that's what's actually going on. But either way, it sure feels like stars falling on a sunny day. The apocalypse was not an unfamiliar concept to the people of the Puritan colony known as Grey Pass. 
An average resident would hear sermons detailing how a tri-headed whore of Babylon emerged from the blood-tainted sea, and the sky would birth a storm so vicious that the stars would fall to earth. Young Samson had imagined this day vividly. The part of the story that plagued the boy's thoughts was the line about the sea turning to human blood. He pictured himself out on the coast with his father pulling the net into the boat only to have the stench of iron replace the salt air. Of course, then he'd have to face the sky-shattering storm, but there was no tempest and no blood. And yet, the world was ending. A black sky would be more favorable than the glaring sun. At least gray skies, rolling clouds, and bolts of heavenly fire would be emotionally relevant. The perfect blue sky turned into a grotesque contradiction behind a foreground of unmitigated carnage. A storm would be a display of sympathy from above. Perhaps rain and thunder were a way for nature or God to let the people of Grey Pass know that someone could hear their cries. But there was no storm. There was no blood. Not a drop in the sea, nor on the ground. Samson sprinted through the town under siege. The boy cupped his mouth to stifle a cry when he caught sight of the remains of his neighbor, Mr. Oswin. Blackened tissue framed where the man's body parts once connected. His face rested on the ground in two halves, his eyes dripping from their sockets. Once Samson saw Oswin's pitiful form, his mind refused to conjure anything else. The burns, the eyes, the many wounds, but no blood. The boy felt his weight being forced to the ground. Samson rolled down a slope and landed in the stream, then crawled on his belly. He found himself under cover of a small bridge. Samson caught his breath and then upheaved his breakfast. The shade of the bridge gave him reprieve from exposure to the vulgar sunlight. He saw a couple running frantically down the same hill he just had. Bright lines of red light appeared across their bodies. A burst of white fire followed by black smoke revealed the scattered and burned piles of the couple lying in the ditch. Tears rolled down Samson's cheeks, for he could not find his family. His father had taken the boat out into the bay. His mother and sister had been at the market. I just wish I could see my mom and dad. I could ask them why all this is happening. Is this my fault? Did my sins set the apocalypse in motion? I could ask them why there's so much death and no blood. Samson could not understand why the remains didn't bleed, because he did not know the concept of cauterizing a wound. Samson didn't understand a lot of things. He was only eight years old. He just wanted anything to make sense. Samson clutched his knees and tried to make himself as compact as possible. Footsteps thundered on the bridge above him. A man's voice roared. Fire at the beast! Before the men could squeeze their triggers, a burst of light erupted from above the bridge. A burnt head landed at Samson's feet. He cried out and abandoned the cover of the bridge. Samson ran and splashed without balance or grace down the stream. He knew he was doomed when he felt the heat of lights on his back. They could see him and they would show no mercy. 
Samson dove forward into the mud. The beams of light shot over his head onto the bank. The white fire left a crosshatch pattern singed into the grass. Perhaps this is what happens when stars fall. Samson kept running, now with a burst of hope, knowing that he had just survived an attempt on his life. His legs carried him to the stone chapel. He slammed the door behind him and started pushing a pew in front of it. He could barely move it an inch. He then opted to knock a wardrobe over. Satisfied with the barricade, Samson ran down the aisle and slid under the pews. He stared up at the eaves and sobbed. Just moments ago, the animal instinct of self-preservation prevented him from feeling anything. Now the weight of his situation caved in on him. Faintly, Samson could hear the cries and prayers of other members of his town, who also took shelter in the chapel. He wanted to comfort them, and in turn be comforted, but he couldn't even summon the courage to move. Something he could not even begin to comprehend was butchering his friends and neighbors before his very eyes. None of the residents of Grey Pass could understand the threat they faced. Was this a falling star, an angel, or maybe the Antichrist? Like the word apocalypse, he'd heard Antichrist so many times in this very room, but he never really knew what that meant. Two weeks ago, he thought he might have found the Antichrist in the surf, a small creature with a form hard to comprehend. It had a sheen to it, it was iridescent. Samson had yet to include the word iridescent in his vocabulary. The creature was the same hue as the inside of a seashell. He had described it to his father as the seashell baby. His father poked the thing with a long stick and turned it over. It had no eyes but a small circular mouth, hands like a human child but no legs. The lower half of its body just faded into nothing. His father's countenance was one of confusion and shock. Let us build a fire, Samson. Together they had burned the creature on the beach and covered its ashes with sand. Samson's father told him that it was just an ugly fish, but the verse about the beast emerging from the sea reverberated in his mind. It's my fault. Samson felt responsible for all of this because he was the one who discovered that ugly fish. Like water passing through silk, a being of similar iridescent quality passed through the church's ceiling. It had the same features as the smaller creature, however, it was incredibly refined and complex. It hovered in the air like a wisp of smoke, but was vaguely humanoid in form. Invisible bands moved down the creature's arms and legs. The bands pinched and cleaved the flesh of the beast. When the band reached a joint, it would tighten and separate the limb from the rest of the body, yet it maintained its shape. This process repeated over and over, pulsating like a heart. The creature's face had six eyes, three on each side, boasting a beautiful symmetry. The eyes were a light gray, and though there were six, only two appeared at a time. The first set would emerge, and then they would be absorbed by the creature's face, the next row, and the next. Its mouth was permanently in a perfect circle, so it always appeared surprised or curious. It looked Samson directly in the eye, 
Samson thought the being might be an angel. What's an angel? Samson, with utter terror and shock, could hear the beast answer his thoughts. <laughs> how, how are you d doing that? What am I doing that confuses you? Her voice perplexed Samson. It was feminine in its tone, but it was not a woman. It was not even a human. Still, it felt wrong to continue calling her a beast. Speaking without sound. I can hear you, but only in my head. Who... what are you? Shh. Silence your thoughts. I don't want the others to hear you. The creature lowered herself to where the boy hid and picked him up. She absorbed him into her body. You are safe now, little one. Samson floated inside the creature as one may float in the sea. He would have had so many thoughts, but being in the fluid sedated his mind. Resting within the being gave Samson an unnatural state of peace. He knew he should be afraid, but the fear could not be felt. The other iridescent beings poured through the ceiling. They plucked the survivors from the pews and left them in the center aisle. The creatures hovered in a circular formation around the five people. And then the red lights appeared where the cuts would soon be. The beasts reduced the terrified group to an assortment of burnt heads, torsos, hands. They carried no weapons. The beasts never even laid their hands on their prey. They simply looked in their victim's direction, and carnage ensued. Samson was safe, still hidden within the creature. He was unable to process the events around him, and so he just uncritically observed. The creatures floated upwards through the roof, carrying the burnt remains. When outside, they started arranging the parts in a large circle. The heads formed the innermost circle, then the chest in the middle, the limbs making up the outermost circle. Their creation mimicked the shape of the sun. One creature floated forward and solemnly expelled ash from its mouth into the inside of the human sun. The beings bowed their heads and lowered themselves to the ground. The creature that spat up the ash spoke. We have found the remains of our beloved child, burned and scattered in the sand. We know little of the humans, but we know they use fire to destroy. We offer this great bounty of justice to you, oh great darkness. Let our sweet child return to us in another life. The creatures did not know that their little one died of an illness, not by human hands. Grief demanded blood even if their victims didn't bleed at all. The ceremony had concluded, and Grey Pass was decimated. The beings joined hands and gracefully ascended to the stars. Don't worry, little one. I'm going to show you everything. 
You are going to be the first of your kind to fly through the great darkness. You'll get to experience the divine power. No longer will you be a heathen. The flock of creatures escaped the atmosphere. Everyone below called them shooting stars. Samson, I'm going to take you out now. She did not know that there was a reason Samson would be the first human to sail through the sky. She did not know that humans cannot survive in the vacuum of space. How could she have known? Ah, the joy of having a baby. Yes, it can be a bit painful. (laughs) Well, they say extremely painful. And risky sometimes. But there's no denying that it can also be a rapturous experience. And in this tale, shared with us by author Georgina Jeffrey, Mother Mandy feels the divinity of delivery. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Dan Zapula, Wafia White, and Kristen DiMercurio. So call the midwife and get ready to wrap the newborn in swaddling clothes, because we're about to experience an ecstatic birth. There is a cold drip in my spine. I turn to you and smile the lopsided smirk of a stroke victim. My lazy muscles grant you just half the effort you are so adamant you deserve. Despite having put so little effort into this endeavor yourself. Do you think it's a boy? The beeping heart monitor makes patterns in the air alongside my voice. Shut up. I start to giggle. Can't help it. (laughs) Don't want (laughs) to help it. Mandy, seriously, shut the fuck up. The midwife gives you a sharp look. Even funnier. She counts down to a contraction, and I burst into hysterics. I see your teeth grinding. Can we make her stop laughing? No. It's a common side effect. Survival reflex, we think. They both hold me down as my body nearly shakes itself off the bed in a fit of humor. Did you know (laughs) that some women, (laughs) some women (laughs) say that giving birth is like, (laughs) is like having an orgasm? It's too hilarious. I sink deep into the pleasure of its absurdity. Ecstatic birth, they call it. The bliss of expelling a whole life form from your core. It must be the body's joyous reaction. A celebration to finally be relieved of the parasite sucking on its juices. My body is preparing for this celebration. My nerve endings are tingling. 
You look at me with disgust as I start to writhe, as moans escape my throat and mingle with the other sounds dancing about the ceiling lights. We need to get it the fuck out of her. The doctor is on her way. We need more than a fucking doctor. There is panic in your voice, and it is delicious. It lends a mottled hue to the other colors in the air. The monitor blinks in and out with a prickly pink noise. My pleasure sounds are the rich undercurrent, and we are all swimming in its waters. The midwife is arguing with you. She is fed up with your language. You are fed up with the entire awful situation. Fever dances in you. You're so close to the edge. We're both so close to the edge. I just want my wife back! That does it. The midwife hisses under her breath, a silky dissonance. This is it! Shivers of ecstasy run through me with every contraction. I feel that my scream is red and bloody. And though my mind says bliss, my body says agony. I'm still laughing, wheezing, straining, as my flesh tears and I am split open in a throbbing symphony of joy and terror, and my swollen uterus finally ejects its horrid passenger. Behind thick walls of glass, a crowd of figures in white coats bend their heads and scribble on clipboards. I see the quiet sound of their pens scritching. It claws at the glass like a nervous animal. You have backed into a corner, face too pale, staring in stiff dread at the thing the midwife is wrapping in fabric. I don't want to see it, I shout, except my voice has ground down to a hoarse, pebbly whisper. It falls from my mouth like little stones. Take it away. Take it away. Is it over? You know it isn't. The midwife is expressing some information to the bodies in white coats. Her words patter in matter-of-fact data droplets onto the glass. She turns to you, still holding the parcel of infant life form. We'll need to run more tests. You said we just had to get through this. We just had to get it out of her. Other bodies are spilling into the room. They have noticed me, that I am still spilling too. I thought the flow of red might have been the sound of my own breathing, but it appears to be tangible to them, and they begin mopping and prying and stitching. Someone presses the button on my drip, and coldness floods into my back. Is it a boy? I ask, and fade from consciousness. There is a whole ward dedicated to us. Practically the entire hospital. Only three women currently in its care. You have been staring at me for a long time. Your voice is so hollow. It has the same weight as an echo as it bounces in and out of the empty beds. You won't give it up then? You have been asking for days. A nurse hovers at the edge of the ward. 
Military personnel swap shifts on the doors. We're just fine. I blow the sound towards my daughter like a kiss. Mandy, it's not real. You understood what it was before. Before it was here. You touch my arm. The sensation is flimsy, insubstantial. Please tell me you understand. This is not your baby. I gave birth, didn't I? I break from my humming to answer you. I am always humming now. It keeps her warm and calm. She loves the feel of my voice. You, on the other hand, are a black hole for my sounds. They distort and twist as they near your event horizon, then briefly flare before being sucked irretrievably into your silence. I give them freely, as gifts. I don't mind that you waste them, these miracles. You'll have miracles of your own soon. Eventually, you speak. Little flashes of energy at the frayed edges of your tired soul. Do you even remember how it arrived? We were walking. Then what? There was music. The memory may be vague, but the warm flush of anguish is unquestionable. It tinges my cheeks with longing. It was beautiful. You bury your head in your hands. This is a nightmare. Isn't it funny? No. I hum a laugh, tickled by the old thought that has suddenly resurfaced. Isn't it funny that pain is so necessary? The look you give me, it tips me fully into giggles, so I cannot finish the thought to completion. But you would know it. If only you could pause to taste the words. We've had the conversation before. Giving birth is the one acceptable trauma we agreed. Necessary trauma for the propagation of species, for the flighty thing we call family. No matter how many chemicals we siphon into our bodies, we can't escape the aftermath, the broken flesh. And perhaps worse, the result of our efforts remains to cling to us in its fragile newborn skin, a whole lifetime cradled in our palms, unaware of the horrors we shall have brought upon it purely by being in the world. My daughter pleases me beyond all comprehension. They say you forget the pain, and it shall all be worth it in the end. You pull me from reverie. Mandy, look at yourself. Your hand trembles as you touch my stomach. I know you are afraid to lift the dressings, to see how much of me is really left. The bandage sinks a little, falling into a depression under your fingers. You jerk away, choking back a cry. The noise attracts the nurse who arrives swiftly at your shoulder, indicates visiting time is drawing to an end. You become ghosts on the edge of my vision. Is she going to live? We're doing everything we can. I promise she's comfortable. 
but she won't be going home. What are you going to do with her? She'll be looked after. Studied, but well looked after. And the... thing? She glances nervously at the guards on the door. I wouldn't know about that. She escorts you into the corridor. You hold a near inaudible conversation, which gently floats back to me over the rest of the day. I thought you could help her. They said it was just an infection. It's not. Listen, you need to let her go. They'll stop allowing you in here soon. They can't. She's my wife. Maybe. What's that supposed to- You'll disappear. Do you understand? If you don't let this go. She'll be safe. They just want to study her. And keep other people... safe. I can't leave her like this. I pluck the speckled sound of your fear out of the air and plate it into my daughter's pretty gurgling. It weaves into a dappled blanket that curls around the room and drapes around the heads of the soldiers. I send it to keep them warm. Soon they are muttering. Their skin itches. A heavy bass note thuds along their arteries. There is emptiness in them, a hollow well of silence aching to be filled. I send them gifts all throughout the night, until they can feel it dancing inside their swollen stomachs. They drop their weapons and clutch at their bodies, contorting, crying. What miracles they are blessed with. All life is a miracle, as improbable as pleasure and the forming of stars, as implausible as music born from errant sounds. We shall all be miracle bearers. I continue to hum with my daughter while their screams blend into our beautiful, blissful melody. Imagine what it will be like many years in the future, after humans have spread throughout the galaxy and beyond. Who knows what's out there? Well, for one thing, there's probably a lot of garbage floating around in space. And in this tale, shared with us by author Nicholas Hughes, we meet Sarah and her team, a group whose job is to scavenge these remnants. I join Erica Sanderson, Mike Delgadio, Jake Benson, David Alt, and Atticus Jackson in performing this tale. So let's see what effect our species has on the galaxy at large in the 27th century, and how what's out there might affect us. Let's raid a tomb adrift in the stars. Many people assume that the human race will eventually know everything. That could be true, but personally I don't think so. The only trend we have found so far is as follows. The more we discover, 
the more mystery there seems to be, which in turn only leads to more questions. By the year 2500, humanity discovered evidence of life on other worlds. By 2580, we discovered we're still alone. The great galactic empire, referred to as the Precursors, once spanned thousands of planets and solar systems, its inhabitants human by all appearances. In our journeys through the planets once inhabited by the Precursors, not one living creature was found. In addition, there was no evidence of what may have happened to them, or what could have possibly killed what appears to be all life in the universe other than Earth. I'm an engineer on a mid-27th century salvage ship, and all of that may have just changed. Our task is to salvage tech from the remaining precursor fleets of ghost ships caught in endless orbit around alien planets. Most of the ship is often unsalvageable, but the few pieces of functioning tech we do find are often worth fortunes and can lead to massive scientific breakthroughs. It's because of this found technology that Earth humans have been able to catapult through technological advancements which probably took the precursors millennia. Beyond light-speed travel, weapons that can destroy an entire planet, and biotech that allows people to live for centuries, to name a few, are all within our reach thanks to salvaged tech. When we came upon our last salvage mission, it seemed like every other mission I'd run over the past few years, which is to say it was fucking creepy. I'll never get used to the sight of thousands of metal behemoths sitting in a debris field like a space ghost town lost to time, their black hulls speckled with asteroid scars and the many gun turrets pointing drunkenly in different directions. I can't help but remember the cockpit of one reminding me of a leering human skull, daring us to uncover its millennia-old secrets. Captain Cox shook me out of my daydream by bringing the headset in my suit to life. Are you ready, Sarah? No, Charles, you know I hate this shit. Good. I'll bring us down on the center mass of the big ship up ahead. You and the boys go in there and make us rich. He brought our scrappy scavenger ship down in the middle of the ancient Leviathan like a mosquito landing on a whale carcass. The away team consisted of myself, Dawson, our resident technological historian, Luke, our safety expert, and a small security detail in case we encountered other scrappers or pirates. We stepped out of the airlock and onto the surface of the giant ship. Clay, our chief of security, took out a replicated precursor photon beam cutter to help us through the thick alloy hull. It was recently discovered technology and could reduce the time necessary to crack one of these ships open from a few hours to a few minutes because of the sheer cutting power it produced with essentially just a beam of light. He pressed the tool to the hull and began to cut when suddenly... Shrapnel from the explosion found out from the cutter, larger pieces nearly removing several heads and causing me to duck reflexively as a gas wave that felt like a miniature hurricane blew past us. What the fuck was that? Whatever chamber we cut into must still have atmosphere. I've probably cut into 50 of these ships. I've never encountered one that still had any cabin pressure. Is everyone all right? Looks like it. But I'll have to recheck everyone's suits to make sure nothing important was damaged before we go in. But we all owe you dinner, and probably several body parts for buying these new reinforced suits. <laughs> I inspected the hole as Luke did a second safety check on everyone's suit. The escaping air had torn a two-foot diameter hole in the alloy armour of the ancient ship, rendering any additional cutting unnecessary. This was fortunate, as the photon cutter had taken the brunt of the initial explosion and looked the worse for wear. We were able to walk pretty comfortably on the surface of these ships due to an artificial gravity we had little understanding of. The lowest part of the ship was many times more massive than it had any right to be, as if it contained an artificial black hole. 
The mystery was compounded by the fact that they were clearly able to move vast distances at great speed while carrying the mass of a mid-sized moon. How this gravity field didn't consume the ship or deteriorate with everything else on board was beyond our current scientific understanding, but it was certainly convenient for the purpose of exploration. Luke finished the safety check, and Captain Cox gave the all-clear. We descended through the hole one by one. The chamber we landed in seemed to be sleeping quarters, as evidenced by the military-style bunks. Even though I was prepared for it, I let out a slight gasp as I entered the chamber. There were bodies on most of the ships we scavenged from, which made them feel more like tombs than vessels. It had taken me a while to get used to looking at the mummified remains of their previous occupants, but this was different. The people in this cabin looked like their last moments were agony. Several of the bodies were on the ground in the fetal position. Others were frozen in time, clutching at their throats. One was even reaching towards the hermetically sealed door, an expression of pain on his mummified features, and I soon saw why. The air ducts in the small chamber were welded shut. I shivered as I realised the people in this chamber must have suffocated in the sealed room without any fresh air coming in through the ducts. But why would anyone do that? Dawson observed the sealed air ducts as well. Poor bastards didn't stand a chance. Stand back. Zack, our second security officer, drew his standard-issue laser weapon and pointed it at the door. He fired four quick bursts where he knew the hinges were typically located on precursor ships and was rewarded with four red-hot glowing holes in the door's alloy frame. We dislodged the door and relocated the surprisingly light piece of metal to a corner of the room, careful not to disturb any of the bodies out of respect. There's an unspoken rule in the business that bodies are left alone, except when absolutely necessary. We don't have the means to give everyone a proper burial, so the next best thing is to just leave them undisturbed. The condition of the hallway outside the crew quarters did nothing to ease my growing anxiety. As with all ancient ships, the few elements space had to offer had slowly worn away at the interior, but over many millennia it added up to total destruction. Repeated cycles of freezing cold and blistering heat from being either in direct sunlight or facing empty blackness had cracked the metal floors, leaving fissures up to a foot wide in places where I could see through to the floor below. Black scars from asteroid impacts, large and small, left scars and sometimes holes in the walls and floor. The roof was the worst, as it had borne the brunt of asteroid impacts, and there were many holes and fissures through which I could see the vastness of space in its galactic magnificence. None of this was what worried me, though. What I found to be truly concerning were the deep gouges in the walls where it looked like someone had repeatedly driven a pickaxe into them with inhuman strength. If I didn't know better, I would have thought they were caused by some enormous beast thrashing in the hall like an enraged rhino. What the fuck? I've heard of people from the old empire sometimes bringing animals from other planets on their ships for research, but I've never heard of an animal capable of so much as scratching these walls. They're steel reinforced with a silicone lattice, which is almost as hard as diamond, but not nearly as brittle. Whoever or whatever did this has been dead for thousands of years. And I, for one, am glad we'll never get to meet it. We forged ahead, carefully avoiding the fishes in the floor, as the gravity of a ship this large could cause injury if you fell from a high enough place. As we moved closer to the centre of the ship, the hallway that had started out relatively narrow expanded quickly to the size of a city street, and then eventually to the size of a small canyon. The ship also expanded above us in the form of more floors. I noticed I could no longer see the stars through the holes in the roof, and the structural damage decreased because of the added protection. 
Seeing the ruin of this once magnificent marvel of engineering gave me a pang of sorrow for its loss. The undamaged sections of wall shone bright with metallic luster, and the doors and panelling had clearly once been sleek. For a second, I could picture the hubbub of everyday life on the ship, crew bustling here and there, carrying messages from place to place, or meeting friends in a dining hall, all aboard a top-of-the-line battleship seeking new horizons. The light sources embedded in our suits abruptly encountered a vast emptiness, too big to illuminate even with the powerful precursor tech. The ragged edges where the hallway ended and the space began indicated that this was not an original feature of the ship. It had most likely been left by the impact of a large asteroid. The hull gave me a true sense of the ship's mass. As we stepped towards the edge, our lights illuminated many levels descending into a deep black crater with no visible bottom. The top of the crater reminded me of the rim of a football stadium, although I could barely see the opposite side. It looked jagged and messy, like a hole punched in aluminium foil. This is too big to get across with any of the equipment we brought. We'll have to descend to the bottom, then climb back up on the other side. I gulped. I was far from afraid of heights, but the thought of descending into the pitch-black moor gave me the willies. I'd done some pretty daring stunts in the exploration of these ships before, but something about this mission made me uneasy. There was a darkness to this ship that reminded me of an old Earth story I once read about the curse of King Tut's tomb. Archaeologists had discovered and ransacked a sacred place meant only for the dead and had paid the price with their lives. I didn't believe in walking mummies or curses or all that nonsense, but I did believe that the dead deserve respect. Given the horrors we'd already seen, I wasn't sure I wanted to see what was hidden in the bowels of the ship. Nonetheless, I voiced no objection as security set up the belaying apparatus and began to descend into darkness. It was almost surreal how quickly they disappeared after beginning their descent, and reminded me of two ants dropped down a well. Before long, it was my turn. I was clipped into a harness and dangling over the void along with Luke and Dawson. We hung there together for a moment, all three trembling, and one by one fell into shadow. The floor zipped by at a speed that approached that of falling on Earth, although it was somewhat arrested by the ropes and the lesser mass of the ship. The light from our suits glanced off floor after floor as we fell, the edges of the crater jagged and torn. More than once I saw the outlines of prone, mummified human remains propped against the walls of the halls or lying on the floor, and I got the sense we were headed towards the more populated centre of the ship. Many of the bodies were clutching at their throats, a telltale sign of asphyxiation, and the main corridors were more crowded than I had ever seen on one of these ghost ships. I could tell we were all thinking the same thing, though Dawson was the first to voice it aloud. This ship must have lost pressure while it was still crewed. These people look like they were exposed to the vacuum of space. That means the people in the first chamber sealed the air ducts to keep breathable oxygen inside. They could have survived in there for a few days, waiting for rescue. I shivered, picturing the crew stuck in that fateful chamber waiting for a rescue that never came, slowly feeling the oxygen in the room grow thin as they breathed their most precious resource. After descending for what seemed like a very long time to fall, Clay told us to slow our descent because we were reaching the bottom. We complied and were soon on solid ground again. The surface we were standing on was a mess of burnt pieces of asteroid and shredded bits of ship that had been carried to the bottom of the crater. It was pockmarked with dents and dimples where fragments of ship or asteroid had dug themselves into the metal. Aha! <laughs> Whatever your jimmies all rustled. This floor is no ordinary floor. This is the barrier between the crew and the cargo. 
Many of these ships were crewed by felons and people with nothing to stay on planet for, so to protect their investment for the long haul, the shipping companies would put a thick divider between the crew and their cargo, making it so you'd have to exit the ship to get to it. This ensured none of their products would go missing. I thought this was a warship. Yeah, it is, but it's also a transport. Ships like this were too expensive for the precursors to only have them serving one purpose. They would often go fight in a battle on their way to drop off goods. Anyway, if we can find a place where the asteroid did enough damage to the barrier, we can blast through it and see what this baby was transporting. Dawson walked around for a bit, then found a place where the metal seemed thin enough. He drew a sidearm and fired, but to little effect. We're gonna have to get that cutter up and running if we want to get through this. Give me that. I'm probably the only person who's seen inside one of these things before. While Dawson dissected the alien contraption, I had some time to inspect the vast area we now inhabited. The impact left by the asteroid's disastrous descent had opened the bottom of the crater into a space much larger than in the upper sections of the ship. The lights in my suit could only illuminate so much, but I got the sense that the encircling blackness had room to hold our own ship several times over. So deep was the blackness, if I faced away from the nearer side of the chasm and tilted my head up, it was almost like I wasn't shining a light at all. This only deepened the unease I was feeling, and I quickly turned back to the crew. Dawson was still tinkering away at the cutter, which now looked even more a mess than when he started. The two security officers and Luke were tormenting him with unsolicited suggestions. They were surrounded by wreckage from the upper layers of the ship. Most of the pieces were just fragments, barely the size of your hand, but some were the size of houses. Each was sitting in its own crater where it had careened into the ground from above. Then I noticed something odd. One of the craters seemed out of place. It was missing the telltale piece of shrapnel that would have made it, but also there was something else. The sides looked too high for the size of the crater, almost as if it had been made from the other side. Come look at this, guys. They followed me inquisitively. Dawson reluctantly put down the pieces of the now totally shredded cutter and followed me over to the crater. Once we were all looking down at it, three things became clear. First of all, this crater was indeed from the other side. Secondly, unlike the other craters, this one went all the way through. Most puzzling of all, it was not made by an asteroid. The thick layers of imperial alloy looked like they had been peeled away like an aluminium can. There were deep scratches and furrows in the surface of the metal around the hole, almost as if they had been clawed into the surface. Dawson, do you know anything capable of this? No. Actually, there are allusions to something, maybe. What are you talking about? Uh, near the end of the Precursor Empire, the ancients were experimenting with some dark biotechnology. We have evidence that genome manipulation did occur. English, please. There's never been hard evidence until now, but there are writings from the end of the Precursors that include references to genetic abominations, uh, creatures that never should have been created. With the Thousand Worlds under their dominion, they had access to an almost unlimited genetic bank, including creatures with bizarre adaptations to hostile environments on the edge of the galaxy. Uh, rumor has it they gave human intelligence to some of these monsters in an effort to create biological weapons of war. But with their sentience came a terrible price. These creatures realized what they were and resented their creators. There were massacres in the genetic labs. These manufactured monsters used their enhanced abilities to do 
terrible things. Some fringe scientists even believe this was what brought about the end of the Precursors, a great war between them and their abominable progeny. Although, since the existence of the creatures themselves is itself in question, scholars who believe this theory of the Precursors end are generally not taken seriously. Are you sure it's a good idea to go down there? <laughs> are you suggesting this creature could have somehow survived thousands of years on a blown apart ship with no oxygen? Even if these mutants did exist, I'm pretty sure there's no gene for holding your breath for 10,000 years. I smiled, realizing how ridiculous I sounded. In that case, you go first. The cargo bay was smaller than I'd imagined compared to the vastness of the rest of the ship. We landed in a small compartment full of what may have been food that had long turned to dust. It was part of a honeycomb network of similar-sized compartments full of similarly useless junk. Many compartments were ransacked, and covered with furrows dug into the metal like a furious bear had been searching for honey. Clay, who had been scouting ahead, spoke urgently into our headsets. Come look at this. We ran to his location and found him standing in front of a foot-thick reinforced door that had been thrown clean off its hinges. If I hadn't seen other evidence of the creature's strength, I would have thought this was the work of a high-velocity explosive. The hinges and the locking mechanism had deep furrows in the frame where they blasted through it, and the door had flown through the air a few feet before landing in the centre of the room where it now rested. What does that say? He pointed to a plaque that rested next to the door. I think it says danger, then... Uh, something I can't make out. Um, then there are symbols for extreme hazard, biohazard, radiation and death. Death will come on swift wings to ye who so much as enter my tomb. What was that, sir? Nothing. Just... Something that's been on my mind ever since we boarded. It's an old warning that was imprinted on a burial ground. This place reminded me. Ah, ancient Egypt. Seven wonders of Earth. I could tell Dawson was about to give us another history lesson. You know, it was thought that the Egyptians had help from precursor remnants to construct those tombs. It's silly to think that, though. The precursors have been gone for thousands of years by the time the Egyptians got around to the pyramids. In fact, the humans from today are thought to have originated from the Precursors somehow. I hate to be a downer, but you know we'll have plenty of time to learn more about this oh-so-fascinating topic when we're not standing around on a frigid space coffin looking under frozen corpses for space gold. See yourself. The next room was an absolute goldmine of Imperial tech. Dawson fawned over some unidentifiable cylinders while Luke looked over a pile of fossilized suits with apparent ore. The security detail handled some small handguns, their batteries corroded with age. Oh, they're gonna be rich! <laughs> all right! All right! I saw nothing that looked particularly up my alley in this room, so I moved on to the next. This one had bare walls, an empty ceiling, and no shelving or storage of any kind. The only thing occupying the floor was a large metal structure that looked like a coffin. I instantly recognised it as an ancient hypersleep apparatus. I was cautiously optimistic about this discovery, as no one had quite perfected the hypersleep technology the ancients possessed, and if this chamber was intact, it could revolutionise the way people travel through space, not to mention making our crew a ton of money. I approached the vessel and inspected the outside. It seemed like a simple enough chamber, but it was surprisingly intact given the condition of the rest of the ship. The lid looked like it was melted shut, and the buttons on the outside were unrecognisable, but it seemed free of any holes which meant that maybe the insides were intact. I brushed debris off the plexiglass viewing window to confirm my good fortune, and shone my suit light inside. 
I jumped. There was a face staring back at me from inside the hyperchamber. A fleshy, fully intact, almost human face. I was just contemplating how maybe the environment inside the hypersleep chamber had prevented the body from decomposing or fully mummifying when the unthinkable happened. The ancient, thousands of years old face twitched briefly. Then its eyes opened. Run! I tore through the chamber where the rest of the away team was still inspecting their booty. Drop it and fucking run! Everyone looked up, confused at my sudden outburst. Dawson reluctantly pocketed a few of the strange cylinders he'd been handling and reluctantly followed me. Luke and the security detail looked a little more hesitant to leave their marvellings. Let's cut your panties all in a box. The two noises happened in such quick succession they almost seemed to occur simultaneously. The first was presumably the top of the life support chamber crashing into the roof of the chamber that contained it. The second was the sound of the sharp, fleshy, tentacle-like thing that had come from the darkness of the next room, quick as lightning, forcing itself through the back of Zack's head and the front of his face. This is probably what had caused him to stop talking mid-sentence. Dragged by the tentacle thing, he disappeared into the darkness and there was a sloppy, wet, ripping noise that made my stomach turn. Clay managed to pull a plasma grenade from his belt and activate it before meeting a similar messy fate. This probably saved our lives, as the resulting explosion collapsed the chamber. It was at this point that the remaining members of the team saw the wisdom in my initial advice and hightailed it from the accursed chamber as fast as we could. Charles, wake your ass up and get us the fuck out of here! What's going on down there? We're fucked! We have two men down and some sort of thousand-year-old pissed-off mutant chasing us! Roger that! Can you make it to the entry point? Negative. I have an idea, but you're not going to like it. And that idea is... Do you see the massive crater in the middle of the ship? We continued our mad dash through the bowels of the ship, closing doors as we could to hinder the progress of the creature. Even so, it wasn't long before we heard our crashing, scraping pursuer gaining on us through the network of tunnels. Time to do your job. Luke tossed a drone turret onto the ground and set it to kill before pumping his legs to catch up with the rest of us. I had told him carrying that thing around was a waste of pack space since we already had a security detail. But this time... I was grateful for Luke's love of his toys. A few seconds later we heard a brief volley of blaster fire and an inhuman roar of pain as the plasma found its mark. There was no time for a second volley, as the next thing we heard was a brief metallic clang and the sound of drone pieces ricocheting off metal walls. By this time, we were approaching the hole through which we had come. Luke boosted Dawson and I up through the hole and we hauled him up by his arms. Who the fuck are you, Captain? You know, flying an intergalactic cruiser into a crater is not as easy as it looks. This thing does forward and back very well, but up and down are not its strong suit. Just get here soon or you'll be looking for an entirely new crew. Like clockwork, the scraping, tearing sounds of our pursuer were once again audible. We scrambled out onto the chasm floor we had initially rappelled onto and across the darkness in the hopes of putting enough space between us and the creature we'd unleashed until we could be rescued. I made the mistake of looking back just in time to see a vaguely human form emerge from the hole we had just come out of. The illusion of humanity was quickly shattered, though, as it was surrounded by oscillating tentacles that it used to propel itself forward like some sort of nightmare jellyfish. I might be able to buy us a bit more time. Dawson pulled one of the cylinders from his pocket. I think these are crystalline engine cores from a prototype ship the ancients were working on. If we could get one to burst, the explosion should be massive. How do you know if there's any juice left? I don't. Dawson threw the cylinder at the creature and fired his blaster wildly. Remembering our explosives training, we crouched in the fetal position and covered our heads. Even through the protective layers of my suit, the explosion was catastrophic. 
I thought I would be cooked alive. I was thrown a great distance from the blast in the diminished gravity and landed temporarily blind and deaf on the reinforced metal floor. I sat up as my senses slowly returned and saw Dawson and Luke lying close to me, equally dishevelled by the landing. As my hearing returned, I became aware of a loud hissing sound and saw Dawson suddenly clutch the side of his suit. Just then, we heard a stirring from the direction of the explosion. The sound was like the slithering of thousands of snakes on sandpaper. I could barely make out tentacles and humanoid pieces making their way towards where the blast originated, as if drawn by some terrible gravity. I wondered how simple genetic manipulation could possibly create such an indestructible beast. Get out of here! I'm fucked anyway! I'm maybe seconds of oxygen left! I tried to protest, but Luke grabbed my arm, dragging me away, and we were soon limping across the chasm for our lives. Above us, I began to see the lights of our ship awkwardly descending back and forth across the vast darkness, our Firefly Rescuer. We pointed our lights up as we ran, a beacon to lead the ship to extract us. As the ship descended to our location, we heard an explosion, and I knew it was Dawson making his final stand. I silently wept as we boarded the ship. Luke's face was wet as well. Where's the loot? Go! Just fucking go! The cruiser took off with a shudder. Cox may have been one of the best space pilots around, but the microgravity really seemed to be affecting his ability. We sped up, then jerked to a halt, then hit the thrusters again like he was testing the brakes. What, what are you doing? We've got to get the hell out of here! Something isn't right. I'm not getting enough juice. The control panel was a mosaic of flashing warning lights. Our fuel indicator rose, then fell flashing. It seemed there were gas leaks in four of the ship's five main compartments. Our fluid system had stopped providing coolant to the propulsion coils. According to the board, we were about a minute and a half away from total combustion. It almost seems like there's an electrical field around the ship. It's screwing with every system. I've never seen anything like it. Could it have anything to do with this? Luke pulled out a small grey box from his suit's largest pocket. It had a single flashing blue light, a set of metallic prongs, and was adorned in symbols only somebody like Dawson could understand. Dawson. I couldn't believe he was gone. It all happened so fast. What was I going to tell his wife back on Earth? What is it? I think it's a battery for a personal propulsion unit. I, I found it right before that thing attacked us. Get rid of it. I was in disbelief that there was any room for discussion. Blast it out the airlock. That thing has got to be right behind us. Wait. Is there any way to make it stop? Captain, don't do this. It's not worth it. We've already lost too many. I think I can turn it off. Luke fumbled with the device. The innocuous blue light flipped off, and just like that, the indicators all normalised. Just you two? The captain hovered his hand over the hatch lever. We silently nodded and began the process of ascending to the safety of space. I looked down from my position near the window, but all I saw was cold blackness. I could almost feel an ancient hostility lurking down there, and I wondered what our enemy truly was. What type of monstrous science could create such a powerful, hating thing whose only purpose was to destroy? It has been years since that fateful voyage, and I haven't been outside Earth's atmosphere since. I got a nice planet-side job, and I'm able to live off that, combined with the small amount of precursor tech we were able to scalp from our final mission but my comfortable lifestyle doesn't stop the dreams. I have dreams of sharp, lightning-fast tentacles and my friends dying, 
than that terrible human face on a creature so far from humanity or current human understanding. The dreams aren't what worry me. What worries me is the current pace of technology. One day, soon, we may go down a path that leads to genetic modification, or similar dark science we cannot stop once it's been started. I worry our current civilization is destined for the same doom that ended the precursors. And now I know there is nothing that can save us when it comes. When you're a kid, finding something weird and rare can be such a thrill. You want to show it off to friends, to brag, but there's that worry that they'll mishandle it, or, or break it, or steal it. It's understandable to be possessive, right? But in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, maybe the finder's keeper's rule is less beneficial than usual. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Graham Rowett, and Atticus Jackson. So let's rock out to this tale of obsession as we all start to covet Joey's Meteorite. Joey Ballantine was one of my few friends. He was a shy kid obsessed with video games and little else. He was slender and pale, and he wore thick eyeglasses. Much like myself, he only wanted to blend in and survive. But one misty April morning, he approached me in the school hallway with a wild look of excitement in his eyes. I found a meteorite. Joey was brimming with enthusiasm, his head bobbing with excitement. He extended his palm and showed me the curious stone, leaning into a locker to obscure the view from anyone else. It was strange, a porous blue-gray rock that was rounded, nearly the size of his small palm. I saw a shooting star above the field behind my house, and I was able to track where it landed. Whoa, that's cool. I reached out to touch the thing. But Joey retracted his hand, gripping the meteorite tightly before tucking it into his inner jacket pocket. It's mine. He had a sullen stare in his eyes, the enthusiasm replaced with defensive hostility. Jeez, whatever, I was just gonna look at it. I felt a thick tension develop between us. I felt a little hurt at the shift in the interaction. I expected an apology, but Joey simply turned around and briskly walked off. I stood there a moment, a bit annoyed, but eventually headed to class. I saw Joey later that day in the cafeteria. He was sitting at a circular table by himself, an empty tray in front of him. His right hand was tucked inside his jacket, no doubt fondling his precious discovery. <laughs> Check out Nerd Napoleon! Billy Richland was a bully who thankfully had other targets to harass daily. But Joey had drawn his attention this unfortunate day. What's up with your hand, weirdo? Joey just stared off vacantly, as if completely unaware of his surroundings. Hey, dipshit! I asked you a question! 
Billy's raised voice caused the ambient chatter to hush into a murmur of whispers. I mean, the eyes of every student were glued to the unfolding drama. I mean, everyone in school knew not to piss off Billy. The last kid who did ended up with a broken arm. I felt a lump develop in my throat. I'd been a bit pissed at Joey, but at that moment, I, I felt terrible and genuinely terrified of what might happen. Joey just stared through Billy as if he wasn't there. You could see Billy's freckled face redden, his large fingers curled into meaty fists. The whispers then dissipated. Billy growled as he rounded the table and yanked Joey up by his t-shirt. Joey's eyes bulged and his mouth widened into a strange smile. Then Billy punched Joey with a loud slap, and Joey's nose gushed red, yet he kept that creepy smile. Billy backed off, proud of his handiwork. I stared at Joey and watched as he licked his bloody upper lip, his hand still tucked in his jacket. A few days passed before I saw Joey again. I was riding my bike to the store to load up on candy and soda, and I spotted Joey's house. And when I did, it only then occurred to me that I hadn't seen him in school since the incident in the cafeteria. And I, I was a bit worried, and I figured I'd check in on him. Joey's father was an electrician who had a fairly successful career, and his mom worked at the supermarket. I'd been over before, playing his latest Xbox find, so I felt no hesitation popping by and seeing if he was around. Plus, it was Saturday, so chances were high. I parked my Huffy in their driveway, propping it up by the kickstand, and soon rapped on the door with my knuckles. The overcast sky seemed darker in the moments that followed. I heard a muffled thump from inside the home, then some dragging sound. I took a step back, ready to leave, and the door opened an inch. From within, a wide eye peered out at me. A toothy, strange grin was obscured by the frame, showing only a few teeth that looked misshapen, as if they'd been pulled to become longer. I barely recognized him, but it was Joey. His face was pale, and purple-green bruises speckled his strangely thinning hairline as well as his neck. He looked like he was dying. A small wound on his brow exposed some strange textured material within. A porous blue-gray was visible just below the skin. I swallowed and stepped back, away from that maniacal grin and insane eyes. Joey? I was unable to look away from the strange, sick-looking version of Joey. Are you alright? My question was rhetorical. He clearly was not. Come inside. He sounded like an old man, despite being a teenager. I shook my head, no, walking backwards slowly to my bike. I watched Joey lurking in the two-inch gap. I wanted nothing more than to get out of there and I hopped on my bike and pedaled back home so fast my thighs burned and my chest ached. Dread flooded my mind every time I pictured that strange grin in Joey's wild eyes, and that thump replayed in my mind as well as that dragging sound I heard. I began to realize things that filled me with waves of fear, like how the lights seemed to be off inside of the home even though his parents' car was in the driveway or how they hadn't answered as they always had before. Still, it took a few more days with no sign of Joey at school for me to tell my mom that I thought something was terribly wrong. I could see the red and blue lights dance on my bedroom ceiling as responding officers went towards Joey's house from the local precinct. 
I heard my parents rustling around, getting jackets and car keys. Dad had a grave look on his face. Stay here. We're heading over there too. I nodded. I had no interest in seeing even a glimpse of what they might find. Most of all, I didn't want to see Joey again after his disturbing appearance in the shadowy crack of the door. Fate is a cruel creature, however. I was tucked into my blanket in the corner of my room, my knees pulled close to my chest by my arms. I wanted to get lost in a TV show or a video game, anything to distract the dark curiosity of what the police would find at the Ballantine residence. Part of me was frozen, however, unable to carry on with anything else until either my deepest fears or relief from paranoia arrived. The one thing I didn't foresee was that I was Joey's closest friend, and his only friend in the area. I hadn't anticipated the fact he might flee once the flashing lights pulled into his own driveway, and I hadn't imagined he might run from whatever horrors were locked inside his home and try to find refuge in mine. I heard the squeaky stair creak like a labored groan, but my parents had already driven off. I ran to the light switch, flicking it off before returning to the blanket again, wrapping it around me. I curled into a ball, leaning into the corner as if I might push into it and vanish from whatever was making those terrible, wet, dragging sounds as they climbed the stairs. I then saw a long shadow bleed in through the doorway to my room. A misshapen shadow, cast long and dark. A labored breathing huffed and wheezed as it drew closer and soon a figure came into view through my doorway, outlined with the glow of the hallway light behind it. Its small chest puffed and shrank with each tired breath, and the head was misshapen, bulging at the jawline and the base of the neck. Strange ridges and valleys cut into the form, misshapen flesh formed pockets overflowing with fluid-like pustules at the knees, elbows, and temples. It was Joey, or at least what used to be him. The thing in the doorway froze, leaning a bumpy, thin hand on the frame as if deliberating whether to speak. My eyes adjusted to the contrast of his silhouette. I could barely make out the wide teeth and in those intense eyes, that horrific grin fixed on his face. I knew that he could see me, and he was looking straight at me. Time slowed to a trickle. My heart pounded so loudly that I was sure its sound filled my small room. I could see more details as my vision slowly adjusted to the light. His skin seemed to hang off in patches. Beneath, where muscle, bone, and sinew should have been, there was a porous, sponge-like texture identical to that bizarre space rock he'd given me a glimpse of by his locker. It had consumed him changed him. After a minute that felt like a year, Joey took a few shaky steps into my room. I watched, and pure horror flowed ice cold in my blood as he drew closer, revealing the bizarre features of his hideous, injured head. One eye looked deflated, a blob of wet tissue poking out of a socket lined with a rock-like crust, the same texture as his prized meteorite. His nose was a loose tent, the skin so thin it looked like wet tissue paper over the cartilage. He drew closer still, leaning over my bed and grinning that horrendous smile. 
and the skin of his lips was stretched wide, bearing dark gums that erupted in mineral clusters as if they'd grown out of the skeleton itself. I began to scream, but there was no escape as he reached out his arms and wrapped the jagged, malformed appendages around me. And he hugged me, squeezing me hard until my shrill screams were extinguished as the breath emptied from my lungs. My ribs ached, and I felt them flatten to the point I thought they'd snap. The pain swelled as Joey's blistered arms tightened. I saw the world grow dim, and I realized I'd be dead within minutes, asphyxiated by Joey's hug. As the terror reached its peak and I felt myself slip away, Joey let go and stepped back. He turned that bloated, wounded neck of his, pivoted his awkward body, and walked back out again. Huffing and wheezing, he descended the stairs once again, leaving our home to go God knows where. I wasn't able to budge until I heard the hum of my parents' car return to the driveway. I heard them enter, and my mom's sobs were soon consoled by my father's voice. I ran down the stairs, past drops of fresh blood Joey had trailed behind, and I ran into my mother's arms. Joey's parents were found dead in their beds with open lesions covering their bodies. Radiation poisoning was the official cause, and I was the only one that was able to offer the key to the puzzle the meteorite that Joey had chased after and gathered from that field. How Joey had lived through that astounding amount of radiation exposure was a puzzle that wouldn't be answered, nor was where he wandered off to. The following days, I tried my best to move past the traumatic events. I buried myself in schoolwork and video games. I played music in my headphones nonstop, eager to distract myself. I didn't want a single second of silence to reflect on that horrific face of my hijacked friend, transformed by some contaminant from the darkest corner of space. I was successful to an extent, but a few weeks after the encounter, I found myself staring in the mirror. There it was, on the top of my hairline, which looked thinner than I'd remembered. There was a purplish tint to the skin as if it was bruised, framing what I first thought to be a pimple. I leaned in close, shaking with terror, as I observed the mineral protrusion, a blue-gray porous crust poking through my skin. Jason, Jessica, June, and John are caught up in one of the most cutthroat activities imaginable. Monopoly. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's game night. And nobody likes game night being interrupted. But in this tale, shared with us by author Rowan Hill, the knocking from outside comes with a desperate plea. But can it be believed? Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Mary Murphy, Mick Wingert, and Sarah Thomas. 
So do not pass go, do not collect $200. Go directly to the front hall and keep the door shut. Free parking means I get the whole pot, not half. Since when? Since always, Dad. House rules. Pretty sure house rules was half. I don't know, dear. I think Jason may be right. Did you hear that? Hear what? I thought I heard. Okay, I'll go and make some more popcorn. Then I'm gonna hit the head. That? Yeah. Yeah, I know. The overhead vent needs fixing. Don't you start. Just wait. As soon as you get some muscle, they'll start making you shuffle up there as well. It is our only air vent, and it's been four years. Yeah, I know, Jess. It's literally our lifeline. I said I got it. I'm just tired, you know? There! I knew I heard it. You heard it, right? Hit the light. Yeah, I heard it. Hello? Hello? Is someone there? <gasps> Hello? Yes, we're here. Oh, God. Hello? Please, please help me. Please let me in. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Hold on. Jason, no, it could be one of them. Please. I don't know how much longer I can hide. I lost it at the cornfield, but... It'll pick up my scent again. The nearest cornfield was the Wilsons, right? That was a quarter mile? How could she outrun them for a quarter mile? Please. Look. What's your name? Mary. Mary Jones. Good, strong Kentucky name. Mary, I'm Jason. How... How do we know you're... human? We know... They can change to look like us. I don't know. Let me in and I'll show you I'm human. How am I supposed to prove it from out here? Shh. Something's out here. Shit. Okay. Mary, hold on. Jason? Guys? What's going on? Jason, what the... Mom, there's a woman outside who needs help. Have you lost your mind? You don't ever open the door. Mom, a woman, a human woman needs help. You outside. How did you find the door? It's behind a large prickly pear bush and camouflaged. Okay, okay, Jason, I think they've moved on. Please, I, I have a baby asleep on my chest. Please let us in. Jesus. Are people still having babies? Ow. Just... Okay, okay, okay. Think, kids. How can we be sure? Sure she is human. Think! Uh, I, uh, I... Wait. Their blood. Remember the last transmission four years ago? The general said that... When they were wounded, after a minute, uh, their blood turned from red to green. Remember? 
Yes. Yes, good, Jason, good. Okay, so if she can cut herself and... There has to be a gap somewhere on... Here. If she could just... Jason. Jason, are you there? Mary. Just stay quiet. I think we found a way to check your human. Just stay still and find something sharp on the ground. What? Are you insane? Just let me in, please. They found out how to control dogs. It won't be long if I don't start running again. Okay, miss. There is a sliver. A tiny sliver of space at the bottom of the door. Find something to cut yourself with and make sure you bleed enough that enough of it flows under. For fuck's sake! Let me in! I'll bleed all you want inside, but I can't do anything out here in the dark with a baby in my arms. Oh, shit, shit, shit! Okay. Okay, she's right. Mom, no, they'll... Okay, Jason, help me move this thing. All right, miss, back away. I'm going to push it open slightly to the left side. Get ready to run in. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. June, what the fuck? John, put... Put the gun down. There is a young woman outside with a baby. She needs to come in. We can plead her to check when she is inside. Have you all lost your goddamn minds? Don't you remember they can imitate anything, even a baby? And you just want to let them waltz in after four years of being safe? You just want to want to open up? Yes, yes. But we can check when she is inside. And then what? Then what, huh? When she turns green... We can just, you know, calmly ask her to leave again? Send her off on her merry way? That is, of course, after she rips our fucking heads off and dives in for the fatty meat. Have you all lost your goddamn minds? Jason? What's going on? I think I just heard a dog. Can you hurry? I'm sorry, young miss, if that is what you are. We won't be opening the door just yet. Dad, her name is Mary Jones. Listen to her fucking accent, for Christ's sakes. You have a gun. Just keep it on her until we can check. Jason, son, you're not thinking. No, we have to help people when we find them. It can't just be us forever. There has to be an end to this. Did you ask if she was alone? That there wasn't somebody else listening in, waiting to rush in? Did you even ask her if it was her baby? No. No, this is insane. I'm letting her in. Don't you get it? They give you what you want. A woman for Jason now that he's older. And June, you always wanted another baby before the goddamn apocalypse. Remember, hon? How can you all be so blind? That's how they got everyone in the first place, giving them exactly what they wanted. That's how they fucking destroyed us. Miss, answer me one question and I'll open up. Jason? I think the dogs have finally found me. They're coming closer. Please, open the door. You're dealing with me now, miss. 
Like I said, answer a question and I'll open up. Uh, okay. Please hurry. What was the big sporting event that happened a month before they landed? What the hell? The LA Olympics? This is your genius move? Everyone knows the answer to that. The damn torch passed through our town. Just wait. John! Danny! Calm down, everyone. Remember, I made this thing impenetrable. Only opens from the inside. We're surrounded by steel and concrete, remember? Only one way in, one way out. Come on now there, miss. Easy question. I don't know. I come from Harlan County, up in the mountains. We didn't own a TV before. My mama homeschooled me. Please. They're nearly here. I'm a good Christian girl. Please. Mary? How, how does she not know? I mean, the forest is deep up there in Harlan, but... You see, son? It's all a show. They can't steal our memories, remember? Remember when Mrs. Wilson's son came back and he couldn't remember a thing before? Talking normally, but before he wandered home, nothing. Next morning, Wilson's are found in pieces. That fucking thing was eating her arm. Found him with pieces in its teeth. My dad, she could... Harlan is up there. The Hicks up there. Please, please, please. At least save my baby. She's just a baby. Answer the question, alien! Mary, Mary, listen. On the hill above the door, right beneath a large, sharp, prickly pear bush is a van. It's big enough to slide down. Do you hear me, Mary? Get to the vent! God damn it, Jason! Mary? Right. That should do it. No more cracks under the door. Don't worry, son. It was all an act. That's how they got everyone. Now, come on. Sit down. I'm gonna get some new popcorn, okay? Everyone got their popcorn? Drinks? All right, now. Whose role was it? I... I mean, it, it was my turn. Where's... Where's the dice? It's on the table over boardwalk. What the... What is that? It's... Green... Blood. In our final tale, we touch down on the planet Kaldar, where we meet up with our hero, Pharos. He's here for one reason, to witness and report on an arcane rite that until now has remained secret. But in this tale, shared with us by author Darius Jones, the ritual is more horrific than Pharos had even imagined. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell and Graham Rowett. 
So let's boldly go where no sleepless person has gone before. We'll witness the Zakir and meet the Hatchlings. The myths, rumors, and speculations surrounding the Zakir ritual on Kaldar are well attested, but they remain only that, myth and speculation. Now, as I have witnessed the thing itself, I feel responsible to share the truth, no matter how loathsome, with the rest of the civilized galaxy. For those of you who remain ignorant of this notorious ritual, I have written this story so that the facts may be plainly known. To the best of my ability, I have tried to reserve my judgment and offer this only as a work of reportage, a relation of true events. After several years of residence on Kaldar, in which I learned their language, their customs, and something of their primal prejudices and obscurantist rituals, I was, at last, invited to a celebration of the Zakir. I, of course, accepted. How could I not? It was an event which no off-worlders had ever been invited to, let alone witnessed. To refuse would have been dishonorable, to decline an insult. I asked few questions and begged no explanations. I knew the invitation was exceedingly rare and realized that too much curiosity might reveal my true intent, my determination to share what I saw. My only guide during the entirety of the ritual was a Caldarian by the name of Mudarak, who graciously agreed to be my sponsor. It was he who not only procured an invitation from the Synod of the Holy Mothers, but agreed to provide a real-time commentary on the ritual. He was also gracious enough to share the ancient responsorial which concludes the ritual, the words of which provided scant insight. I memorized the responsorial and the requisite motions which accompany them until I performed them like a native, according to my sponsor. The rest of my knowledge concerning the ritual was gleaned from the usual sources, faded tomes in the Caldarian archives and miscellaneous third-hand accounts in the popular literature. Third-hand because all Caldarians are under strict interdict to never speak a word about the details of the ritual to any off-worlders or risk becoming the next subject of the ritual. Not only are Caldarians forbidden to speak of the ritual, no recordings of any kind are allowed. This is due to the origins of the ritual. For most Caldarians, the Zakir still has the residue of a hoary, numinous past associated with the hardy ancestors who first colonized their planet. It is said that in the year 473,545 AQ, that is almost at the dawn of Caldarian history, the first victim, or should I say subject, of the Zakir, a certain Nebnam Hakal, met his fate at the hand of the Arak. At the time, it was strictly forbidden to record the event, as it would diminish its mystical flavor. Of course, Caldarian culture has, in certain respects, evolved since then. 
It has secularized, modernized, and shed many of the more bizarre and brutish cult customs of its first settlers. But the ceremony of the Zakir has remained virtually untouched since the time of Nebnam. But I dwell on the past, on what once was. I approached the entrance to the Colosseum in the company of my good friend Mudarak. We paused briefly before a gargantuan white marble statue in front of the gate leading into the arena. It depicted Karmara, the supreme goddess of Kaldar. How many times had I wandered past this statue? Had I wondered at the hidden clues that her pose, dress, and features might hold? I had seen the crowds streaming in through the Mashkal Gate, men, women, and children, in their tunics of white linen, and wondered what they would shortly witness just behind the high walls of the Colosseum. How many times had I tried in vain to decipher the amplified announcements in Proto-Caldarian that emanated from within? How often had I tried to decipher the crowd's shouts and gasps to no avail? How many times had I altered my daily schedule to observe the look in their faces when they came out? But if any shock or horror was there, it was well concealed, for the spectators passed by chatting of trivia. Their U-Droid's battery pack had malfunctioned and needed replacing. The dust storms had been so bad this year they would have to replace all the filters on the solarium. The mother Omaraku would not be standing trial on embezzlement after all, and the charges against her were to be dropped. They would speak of everything but the Zakir. There was one clue, however. The statue of the goddess Kamara, as I said, was immense, six times the height of a man. She was dressed in the same white tunic of all the attendants of the Zakir. She was a normal human woman, except for one detail. On her head, she wore a crown of small orbs. They rose up to a great height on her skull, as if she were wearing an elongated crown. Having entered the shrines of numerous deities and cult heroes on many worlds, I assumed that it was a metaphor of some kind, connoting the fecundity of a mother goddess, whether literally or metaphorically. I would soon learn how wrong, how naive I had been. After some moments of gazing up at the statue in admiration, Mudarak turned to me. Shall we? Of course, I said with a small resolute nod. Lead the way. The guards at the entrance had been notified that an off-worlder would be attended. My sponsor presented a paper with a special seal bearing an encrypted message with the requisite authorization from the Synod. The guards scanned it and waved us on. Before us stood a vast oval, large enough to house, by my estimate, some 60,000 spectators. From our seats, I could see the arena below was full of sand, from the great western desert of Kaldar, no doubt and covered in a reinforced glassite dome strong enough to keep a Golgoth within it. Several portals under the glass opened onto the arena. A large video screen hung above the enclosed dome, counting down the last minutes before the Zakir was scheduled to begin. Every single spectator, from the oldest man to the youngest child, wore the same white tunic. 
a relic of the ancient past of Kaldar, it must be wrapped around the body four times and is impossible to put on unassisted. My companion, as always, helped me to drape mine across my body in true Kaldarian fashion. No decoration of the cloth is permitted, and no accessories are to be worn. Another faithful detail of the ancient ritual preserved from time immemorial. The last of the spectators was seated as the clock counted down the final seconds. My companion turned to me and whispered quietly. The Zakir is conducted in the ancient tongue of Kaldar. Most of the ritual will be plain enough, but I will try to provide some context. I must have given some sign of apprehension, for he asked me, Are you sure you wish to witness the ritual? We must run for the gates now, or stay to witness it in its entirety. It is forbidden to leave once it has begun. Run? Don't be ridiculous, Madarak. This is what I came to Kaldar for. My companion looked at me askance. Perhaps, I thought, my answer had given away too much. As you wish. All the seats in the arena had been filled, save for two rows on a raised dais overlooking the arena opposite our seats. The timer on the suspended video screen ran down to zero and stopped. The crowd began to applaud quietly and politely. The noise grew louder and suddenly stopped. Slowly, a group of men dressed in white tunics walked into the arena carrying trumpets. They silently filled the lower row on the dais. They raised their trumpets and played a melancholy hymn, no doubt unchanged from ancient times. As the song wore on, the trumpets fell silent one after the other, until only one played on. Its plaintive tune rose and fell, echoing through the hushed arena. The Lament of the Desert. The final note died away, and the trumpet player placed his instrument at his side. He began to speak, almost shouting the words. The language was clearly Caldarian in nature, with its trademark ululating vowels and harsh consonants, but I could not make out a single word. The entrance of the dignitaries. In a silent, shuffling line, the local Caldarian leaders marched in, occupying the final empty row of seats above the trumpeters. The last three were Procurator Mitzar, the chief gendarme Kokab, and one of the Holy Mothers, Zerlana. Despite their high station, they all wore the same white tunics as the rest of us. The trumpeter blew a single, sharp note. He removed the trumpet from his lips and began to speak again, his voice loud and hoarse. When he had finished, an elderly woman entered to join the dignitaries on the dais. The old woman was followed by an old man, a middle-aged couple, and children ranging from those ready to assume the Hokata to those barely old enough to enroll in the Synod's chapter house. Every member of this family was dressed in black tunics. The offended party. The crowd applauded again, politely. A few people yelled out something, but I did not catch it. Mother Zerlana came forward to speak, addressing the crowd. 
It was succinct and concise. I glanced at my companion. The requisite benediction. She finished and resumed her seat. The crowd grew silent. I turned my gaze to the middle of the arena. A trap door slid open and up rose a young man on a pedestal, his hands bound behind him around a black metal mast. He wore only black pants that reached down to his knees. His chest was bare and he wore no shoes. The mother Zerlana said something again from her seat and raised her hand above her head in a fist. Then she opened it so that her palm faced the sky. She spoke as if reciting something. The verdict once more. The young man was hyperventilating uncontrollably and looking around wild-eyed. He attempted to move, to break free of his restraints, but seeing it was useless, he stopped. His head had been shaved and smeared with some type of viscous purple substance. His ears at first appeared to have had their tips cut off, but looking closer, I saw they had been taped down with the greatest care so that they would not protrude over the purple skullcap. Mother Zerlana let her hand fall. Another trap door opened up right in front of the man. Two small towers with nozzles attached to them rose up out of the ground. They opened their valves and a fine mist came out, covering the man from head to foot. Pheromones. The mist stopped and the nozzles retracted. The two towers disappeared back under the arena floor and the trap door slammed shut. Even from a distance, I could see the man breathing violently, strapped to the mast. A portal in a side of the arena, safely under the dome, opened up. I knew what would emerge, and yet did not. I clasped my hands together briefly, and noticed they had grown moist. I wiped them clumsily on my tunic and forced them to hang at my side. Something moved in the darkness, and a whispery commotion rose from the crowd. A black, hairy limb with two hooked claws at its tip emerged out of the portal. The limb probed the arena sand and retracted slowly, almost coyly, disappearing into the darkness. Nothing happened for a moment. Another dark, hairy limb probed the sand. And suddenly, the Arak charged out of its hole into the middle of the arena. The crowd shrieked and cheered with delight. Stopping almost in the middle of the arena, the Arak froze, waving its two front legs. I exhaled in relief, for it was much smaller than I had imagined. Legend had insinuated that the female Arak was twice the size of a man. But I found it was just the opposite, for it only came up to the man's waist. Perhaps, I thought, it would not be as gruesome as they have said. Perhaps it will be quick. Despite a modicum of relief, I still found the creature repulsive. It was completely black, save for a small red orb at the center of its abdomen. From the end of its hooked legs to the top of its head, it was covered in thick, rough hairs. It had dual fangs the size of a kraal knife. 
Ten soulless, unblinking eyes kept watch for both predator and prey. Eight legs served various purposes. Four to capture and bind its prey, two hind legs for leaping, two more for feeding and delicate work. Only the radioactive harshness of Kaldar's great western desert could have produced such a monstrosity. I glanced at my companion, and he sensed my uncertainty. What is it? The Arak. It is much smaller than I thought. The man must be too large for her. The male Arak is twice as large as the female. It is not uncommon for Kaldarian arachnids. Besides, she is more nimble, and the male's bulk serves an evolutionary purpose. The Arak crept toward the man tentatively, with a seemingly unbalanced arachnid gait. Suddenly, it froze as if stunned. Its two front arms opened as if in surprise and gratitude. Already her caretakers have impregnated her chemically as she slept. She is ready to birth, but the instinct to mate remains unfulfilled. The young man began to scream. He stopped and pleaded hysterically with the whole arena, panting as he yelled for mercy. I turned and looked at my companion. He, like the rest of the arena, was transfixed on the scene. The Arak continued to flick its front legs, but did not move from its spot. She is picking them up now. What? The pheromones. Of course. The Arak had fallen into a trance of lust. Its four front legs rose and fell with the velvety viscosity peculiar to arachnids. It was not meant for locomotion, but to charm and entice. If it had been human, the word dance might have captured it. As the Arak continued, the man's screaming stopped, and his head fell on his chest. The crowd began to applaud. I could not. I turned to my companion and saw him applauding lustily. He shot a glance at me and then down at my hands. Perhaps sensing his perturbation, I half-heartedly clapped, joining the rest of the arena. The crowd's applause died as the Arak's dance continued. The spider rose up briefly on its two hind legs, all six legs whipping around in a frenzy for a moment. Suddenly, its four front legs froze. A shiver passed through its body, and the Arak became still. Without warning, the beast leapt. It scampered forward and lunged at the man, binding itself to his torso. The crowd cheered. The man's head went up again, and he held it stiff against the metal mast. For an instant, the spider was face to face with its prey. I imagined ten lifeless eyes peering into the man. Is that it? Is it over? Mudarak did not tear his eyes away from the scene. It has only just begun. I watched as the Arak bound the man tightly, almost tenderly. The hooks on its legs did not break the skin, but merely stretched and held it when necessary. Without letting go, the Arak spun on his torso until its abdomen, with its livid red spot, was inches from the man's face. 
The spider's head was now just below his belly. The man began to scream, but it was inhuman. A desperate, aural gesticulation. The Arak's head reared back and buried its fangs in the man's belly. The mating bite of the Arak. It does not kill, but only paralyzes temporarily. The man let out a gasp and grew silent. The Arak held its fangs in place and began to press its abdomen into his chest in a strange rhythm. It continued for a few moments and then, apparently satisfied, stopped and removed its jaws from his belly. Deftly and meticulously, the Arak changed position again so that it was face to face with the man once more. As the Arak repositioned itself, the man's head slammed back against his headrest and stayed there as if frozen stiff. His eyelids fluttered slightly and then closed. The Arak turned its attention to the man's head. Its fangs found the boundary created by the purple residue on the man's skullcap. It bit down. The man's body shivered at the first cut, but remained motionless as the Arak chewed its way around his skullcap. The Arak finished the circular cut around the man's skull and seemed to look at the man with a sort of curiosity. It paused as if thinking. Then, with a quick flick of one of its front arms, it popped off his skullcap, which fell wet with blood to the sandy floor below. The Arak, as careful as ever, changed its position. It again placed its head near the man's stomach with its abdomen towards his head. The Arak's body froze. The crowd applauded again. What? What now? The hatchlings. The Arak's entire being quaked. Without a sound, an egg came out of its abdomen and was deposited on the exposed brain tissue of the man. It was a yellowish egg, smaller than a man's fist. The Arak repeated the procedure again and again, shuddering with each new egg. How she suffers. The eggs are preternaturally large. Fertilization has been done unnaturally, too soon. She? I wanted to look away from the spectacle. I could not. I, too, was under the trance of the Arak. It shuddered and quaked as it filled up the man's head with egg after egg. When it was almost done, I noticed the eggs stacked to a point on top of the man's head, as if he were wearing a crown, just like the goddess. What? Nothing. Nothing. I just... I felt a wave of heat rise through my body. Things started to grow yellow and white. I swallowed and told myself to stay focused. In a moment, the feeling passed, and my vision was restored. The Arak laid its last egg. Its job was done. It scampered down from the mast. The Arak was halfway back to the portal through which it had entered when the stadium broke into a wild cheer. I looked at my companion, 
he was doing the same. And then I did the one thing I truly regret for my whole time on Kaldar. I cheered. I applauded. I yelled as loudly as I could, not because I felt it, but because of the oldest instinct of all. Self-preservation. The Arak must have heard the muffled drone of cheers and applause through the dome, or felt the vibrations rising up through the sand. It took a few cautious steps back toward the man, and waved its front legs as if trying to defend itself. In that moment, I pitied her, as horrible as she was. It looked so desperate there in the middle of the arena, cringing before a host of enemies it could not see. Yet another victim of the Calderian's age-old lust for vengeance. I was to be rudely awakened from my musings. The Arach lunged forward and, in a few quick leaps, landed with a loud thud on the glassite dome above our seats. Our entire section gasped. Without thinking, Mudarak and I fell to the ground and hid behind our seats. The two rows in front and behind us did the same. The rest of the crowd erupted in ecstasy, cheering and clapping riotously. Just above our heads, the Arak's fangs tried hopelessly to puncture the dome. The rest of the crowd began to laugh. And though they meant to mock us, I have never been so relieved at the sound of laughter. The glassite dome flickered on and off. The Arak instantly let go and fell back onto the arena floor. My companion gripped my arm as we came to our feet. The glassite is electrified. The Arak spun around and scampered back into its dark chamber. The thick door closed firmly behind it. My heart was racing and I breathed quickly. I began to calm down as soon as the Arak had disappeared. The crowd tittered excitedly for a moment more, but began to grow quiet as well. The man in the ring was waking up. He opened his eyes wide, blinked a few times, and sighed groggily. At first, his eyes held a sort of relief. The Arak was gone. He was still alive. Then... He looked at the floor of the arena. He saw it there, something bloody in the sand. His eyes grew wide. He had understood. That bloody waste had once been part of him. Perhaps sensing something, he gazed upward. He saw the eggs piled on his head and screamed in a way I have never heard before or since. He tried to move and shake his head, but his body would no longer obey him. The venom had made his body uniformly rigid, stiff. The eggs began to shiver and crack. One near the top popped open and a miniature Arak emerged, a red livid spot on its belly. One after another, the yellow eggs hatched. In a few moments, a thousand baby Araks, each the size of a thumbnail, fumbled and crawled over one another in a seething mass that began to spill over the man's face. 
that is when the sound started. That sound which haunts me still. One of the little Araks lifted its legs to the sky and began to shriek. As soon as one started to cry, it was taken up by the entire brood, and the cry of a thousand famished arachnids filled the arena. They hunger. The man bound to the mast looked up at the hatchling seething on his exposed brain. He continued to scream, but whenever he paused to breathe, all one could hear was the high-pitched screeches of the little araks. It's not the brain of the male Arak, but they have no choice. The Araks grew quiet. They began to burrow down, around, and through one another to reach the bloody, exposed tissue. They consumed in blind hunger. They say in the wild, the young Araks will consume some 50% of their brethren in the first few minutes of life. In this case, the nutritional value is lower. Only 10% of the Araks will survive their first hour. Fascinating. The weakest and smallest Araks were forced aside or consumed. They began to trickle over the man's face and eyes as he looked on helplessly. He screamed a final time, his eyes dull and half-closed. The Araks continued their feast, spilling down his face or burrowing deeper into his brain. A few of the Araks, already sated, began to crawl down his body to the floor of the arena. There was a loud alarm, a single tone. Everyone in the arena grew silent and stood up straight. The spectators, the offended party, and the dignitaries on the dais all bowed their heads and cupped their hands over their foreheads. I did the same. I knew it was time for the recitation. Life has been, been taken, taken, we said as one. We moved our hands, clasping them over our hearts. Life has, has been, been given, given, we said. In unison, we unclasped our hands and lifted them up, our palms facing the sky. You, you are, are just, oh Karmara. We held our hands aloft for a moment and brought them down to our side. The little Arax began to jump down from the remains of the man and spread out across the floor of the arena, exploring their new world. The trumpeters signaled once again, and the arena bulb darkened out. The house lights came up, and the crowd began to file out of the arena. We passed by the statue of Karmara. Well? What was his crime? I'm sorry. What was his crime? Modarak paused. His crime? Yes. I'm not really sure. Not sure? No. It happens so often, I... He paused, sensing my unease. You can find the record in the archives of the Council of the Holy... I don't care about the archives! A few of the departing spectators paused and shot glances in our direction. I stepped closer to Madarak. I want to know what he did. I don't know. 
The Zakir takes place every other Alamat. It is hardly uncommon. Yes, yes, of course, hardly uncommon. Is that it, Madarak? Does that make it all better, that euphemism, hardly uncommon? Does that drown out the screams of the hatchlings for you? Pharos, you are unwell. Mudarak looked at me with mock concern. Come, let us retire to Unwell? Unwell? Suddenly, his words struck me as absurd, as mad. I began to laugh at what he had said. (laughs) Unwell? And are you well, Mudarak? You or any Calderian? I walked away, laughing derisively to myself. My companion dared not pursue me. To this day, I remain unwell. And though I write this story a thousand times, unwell I will remain. There are things that should remain secret. Things that no man should ever witness, lest he risk becoming irredeemably broken, unhinged, like a ruined airlock hatch. I know that it is so for me, for ever since that day, I have not been the same. I sleep, it is true, but it never nourishes me, never gives me what I need to become whole and healthy again. For every night in my dreams, I return to the arena. But this time, I am not the spectator, but the victim. I am chained to the mast on the arena's floor and hear the muffled commotion of the crowds above, the trumpets, and the pronouncements of the Holy Mother. I relive the victim's torments, the seductive dance of the Arak, its paralyzing bite puncturing my stomach with intense pain followed by a strange numbing sensation. I nod into semi-consciousness as it goes about its work, And all this would be bearable. All this I could endure. But soon, I hear the soft sound of cracking eggs. The mass of Arax coming to life. And I hear that sound, the shrieks of the hatchlings. I feel the tissue give way with each prick of their innumerable jaws as they burrow into my flesh. And suddenly, I jump up, fully awake, screaming. Get them off! Get them off! Get them off! As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. 
The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.